So, all right. Well, today we are going to, speaking of prayer, speaking of nations, speaking of renewed covenants, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. Uh, if you have a Bible, we can, uh, <clears throat> you may want to get yourself set up there. 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. Uh, but Sharon, if we can have our first uh, slide. That'd be nice. Thank you. So uh, in our story, right, of the heroes of faith of the Bible, our, our next uh, person uh, that we're dealing with is Josiah, uh, and maybe even more so than Josiah, maybe a man by the name of Helkiah. So uh, I forget, who's the last, does anyone remember the last hero of faith that we discussed? It was two weeks ago. Um, I actually believe the last person we discussed was um, Isaiah, right? Yeah, Isaiah, two weeks ago. Um, the cold to the lips, Japanese pottery. You guys remember that? Yeah, yeah Japanese pottery. Now you guys remember. Cool. So what we have now is, you know, there's, there's, there's a gap of time between Isaiah and Josiah uh, a bit. But what we have here is over time, the, the same story is around. And that story is one of that there are unrighteous kings that pop up. People that do defilement, that turn away from the Lord. Uh, now, Josiah is going to be the boy who is made king. He's actually made king at the age of eight years of age. Okay? And what we have here is Josiah is going to bring forth a series of reforms to Israel. He's going to say, what have we been doing? It's like a roller coaster ride, right? Bad kings, good king, bad kings, good king. He's a good king. So we've got to bring forth reforms to Israel. We need to get rid of the abominations. We need to get rid of the idols. And we need to go after the one true God. Okay? And he's going to do that. And the Lord says very nice things of him. And after his death, you know, the roller coaster ride goes again. That's a bit of the background of, of what's going on. So let's read 2 Kings chapter 22. We're going to pick up in verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8. The first person of our story... Outside of King Josiah, the first one we're going to discuss and hear about is a guy by the name of Hilkiah. Okay? Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. The book of the Lord, the book of the law, Really, at this time, would have been the first books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. At least those first five have gone missing. The rest of the portions of the book, to be quite honest, maybe Samuel was written, but like Kings, Chronicles, and Psalms, we're not there yet in time, in, in many regards, in writing them down. So the first main books, the Torah, the first books of the law were written, but they've gone missing. No one even knew about them. They were hidden away in the depths of the temple. And they're in there cleaning or doing whatever they're doing. And a guy by the name of Hilkiah comes across, and Shaphan come across the holy word of God that in many regards they didn't even know existed. 
Because the generations before them, they weren't reading the word. They weren't getting into the word. They just kind of put it in the dust closet of the temple, if you could believe it. That's how wicked the nation of Israel had become. Started serving other gods. Not getting into their word. So here he is, a young guy. The priest comes out and says, we found the word of the Lord. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? And they read it before Josiah. And he has a response. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. And tearing of clothes is a a notion of repentance, right? We see the rest of the story quite beautiful in chapter 23, down in verse 2. It says, The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is after he hears the words of the Lord. The priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, and he read... In their hearing, all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. Can you imagine this? Generations have gone by. People don't even know there's a word of the Lord. They find it in the back of the temple. They read it. They're like, oh my goodness, we have not been serving the Lord in the right way. So he brings all the people together. We're going to have a public reading of not a chapter, but of the entire existence of the Bible that is known at the time, which would be the first several books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, five, probably, most likely. Can you imagine if we all came together and you stood outside, yes, stood outside and stood there and listened to a government official read the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he just read through all five books. How long would that even take? I don't know. But people are like, oh, what are we doing? Let's get going here. But there's such a repentance that people hear of the covenant of Yahweh. And they're like, we need to renew this covenant. We didn't know that there was the word of the Lord. It's crazy. It's totally crazy. So how do we relate to us in a New Testament context in the 21st century with technology and all this kind of stuff? It's this. Rediscovering the word of God in your temple. In your temple. Rediscovering the word of God in your temple produces repentance, revival, a newfound covenant and contract with the Lord, and power. Repentance, revival, a renewed contract, a new sense of urgency, and power. Amen? Amen. So, yeah, okay, so what I'm kind of getting at here is, I'm just being fair with all this. Sometimes, you know, we got to look inside of our temple and be like, yo, where's the word of the Lord? Have I kind of pushed it aside in the back closet kind of thing, right? Come on, it was going on for generations. So what we have here is that the word of the Lord, sometimes, uh, in, in some of our hearts, or maybe just in the church in general, I don't know. I mean, we, we all go through different things. I go through things, you know. There are times when the word, and you know, I'm not maybe plugging into the word as much as I should. Um, but what happens here is it's, it's still in us. The word is still in us, Right? It's still in our temples. It just may be hidden a little bit and needs to be rediscovered again. Uh, And so this leads me to something which I hope is not too utterly philosophical for us uh, today. If it is, my apologies, but I hope it kind of comes together at the end. So we're going to get into a little bit of a philosophical way of looking at this stuff to paint a picture of today. Because we're looking at something like three, 
almost 3,000 years old. How do we relate to this stuff today? Right? So we're going to get a little, a little philosophical is maybe one way to put it, or sociological, and then we're going we're to nail it home, hopefully. So let's, uh, let's go to um, the next slide. The word, the word, the word. Something that is written on the page, something that is spoken. Okay? Uh, there is what I call, or really someone else, but I'm going to say me, because, you know, I don't know, I'm just am. <laughs> Says that in the modern society, there is what we call the humiliation of the word. Just words in general. They don't have to be biblical words, but words in general. But we'll slow down. This is the first step. A humiliation of the word. We'll get to that in a moment. But here, here I think, is a better way to put it. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? So there's this notion that pictures and images, in some regards, are better than words. If you think about modern-day society, I make the argument that modern-day society is a very, very image picture-driven society. And we're going to prove that in a little bit. A picture is worth a thousand words. So why would I say a thousand words if I can give you one picture and the one picture would convey a thousand words? It's so much easier just to give you a picture. So much easier to show you a video. It's so much easier to show you a graph or, or something, right? But let's go to the, the next slide here. Yeah, a picture is worth a thousand words, but... Words are the things that bring understanding. And the word, God's word, brings intimacy and revelation. The word, God spoke, and there was creation. Came from a word. Jesus is the word made flesh. The Word made flesh. Mm-hmm. I'm building my argument here, so don't, I don't want to lose it yet. The Word is very, very important. I would argue not just the Bible, which is tremendously important, but also the spoken Word to one another, and even newspapers are very important. Words, words, words are very important. We say, all right, Dave, what on earth are we doing here? Look, what, what I'm trying to convey to you is I really do believe, especially interacting with younger people in school, that we live in a highly, highly image, picture-centric culture. You may be like, all right, whatever. No, you watch TV, you see things on the internet. We see even kids today don't even read through an internet page. They just glance through the main things. Uh, there's a whole other kind of weird thing going on here. Um, but the problem here is when we live in a world of images and pictures, there isn't enough understanding of what's going on. There isn't a depth of understanding. And I'm putting it this way. In modern day society, whether it's the news or the Bible, a lot of people get their ideas, their convictions, and their understanding through a picture. I'm not here to make a political mess about uh, Joel Osteen and what was going on, or a politician, or anything that's going on. But I am telling you, I am telling you, telling you, telling you, dealing with this stuff every day as a high school teacher. The media will give you a picture, and we assume it to be true. Yes. Yes. They'll give you a picture, they'll give you a sound bite, they'll spin it this way, and what's really disturbing is that their people, after watching a one-minute or two-minute news clip, actually think that they're now an authority on the subject. Come on, that's so true. <laughs> 
there's a complete generation of people who get their news information from Facebook feeds. They see a picture with a meme, and if you're over 50, you may not know what a meme is. They see a meme and a picture, and they actually think that they are informed now. It's crazy. Now, if you don't live in that world, then you may not understand some of this. But if you live in this world, it's, it's, un, it's, it's unreal. You have all these experts running around who actually have no depth of knowledge. Because all they know are the convictions of what they have seen, not which they have read, and not which they, they have experienced. Now, this also happens with Christianity. In Christianity, some of us have to be very careful. Because pictures of who God is and feelings and emotions of what you think God is can be very dangerous if it's not backed up by word. The word brings the understanding. There are plenty of people out there that say your Christianity says you are to love one another. And then therefore, you know, uh, you know, why should you say homosexuals can't be married in your church? You get what I'm saying? Now, off of emotion, someone may say, well, you know, emotionally, you know, these two people love each other, and you're supposed to love one another as Christ loves us. So aren't, isn't that such a hateful thing? No, it's, it, it's, it's only a hateful thing if you're not reading the Word. So there's a lot of people who have these perspectives of what Christianity is and what they think they are as a Christian, and it's very, very shallow knowledge because they're running their life off of emotion and not the Word. Now, even us seasoned believers can fall into this trap. I feel that this is what I'm supposed to do. I feel that I'm allowed to do this because it makes me feel good. I feel and think that this is what should be done because it just seems right. Well, we know, right, in scriptures, the heart of a man is deceptive. Above all else, right? Now, when we're engaging with people, of course we show love to people. We show love to all types of people. We show love to sinners in the church and outside of the church. We, we show love, but when it comes to theological matters, we need to get into the Word and understand the Word so that we know the nature of who God is and what He's like. But the sad thing is, in our culture in general, I told you we're going to be a little philosophical today. In our culture in general, there has been a decline in just words. There's been a decline in reading. There's been a decline of understanding. Our life is so fast-paced that we just scroll through our Facebook, we check our Twitter, and now we are an expert on opinion. It's unbelievable. You just think about it this way. It used to be if you conveyed to one another in conversation, before the telephone, before internet, all this kind of stuff, you'd write a letter. Dear sir, dear madam, think about all the art and think about all of the thinking that you would have to convey to take complex emotions that you are feeling and experiences that you are having and to crunch them down into a word and into sentences and into individual letters to then convey it back to the person. The words for thousands and thousands of years, actually 10,000 years of, of written, recorded history. That's the way it took place. And what changed that? Email. I remember when I was young, emails began with, dear sir, and sincerely, best regards. Now it's like, yo, what's up? 
what's going on? What are we doing? It's very quick. It's very abrupt. And you may say, well, who cares about this? No, this is very, very important. Because when we shrink down language like that, we shrink down understanding. And this relates to the spirit. If you haven't rediscovered the word of God in your life, and you're still living in images of who he is and not the realities of who he is. So, okay, it's gotten worse because from emails we went to text messaging. And then text messaging, we go to the next one. This is this, like, blows my mind away. Uh, we have gone to, uh, conversation has been broken down to even Twitter. 140 characters. Instead of a letter, instead of a book. Now you read, you know, this politician said this on Twitter, and now you're an expert on, like, foreign policy. This person, this person tweeted 140 characters about what's going on in North Korea, and you read it, and you know you retweeted it, and you know what? Now, you're an expert in foreign policy. This is how people think. This is how people think. Well, have you read the actual International Nuclear Ban Treaty Code? No, I don't have time for that. Exactly. You don't have time for that, so you don't understand. So you've broken it down to 140 words. So we converse each with one another, even with 140 characters, and that got too much for us. And now what we do is we just emoji one another. Like, I want to convey my emotions, my feelings, my understandings through a picture. Has anyone read a text message? You're like, oh, man, I don't know what the intent of this text message is. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the tone of this couple of words, like, what do they mean by these words? You start trying to figure it all out. That's the problem of the escapism of word. Okay? And so that's what's going on. All right. Now, don't worry. It's going to relate to Josiah and Hilkiah. What's up, man? Good to see you. We have been here before. What I just conveyed to you, this crazy, like, image-centric thing, you're like, oh, no, this is, like, too out there. Maybe this is going to drive the point home. The ramifications and the effects of this type of mentality Mankind has been here before. He was here before the word was written down. Ancient man, before the Israelites, how did they know their God? Anyone know? This should blow your mind away, I hope. Through an idol, right? Through a statue, through an image. Ancient man, before God wrote the word, Ancient religions knew of their deity and they knew of their spirituality through an image, through a graphic. And they were okay with that. But there's no depth in that. And I make the argument that today, many of us know our God through an image, a false image. You read something real quick, you hear some pastor say something, you quick grab it, you make it your own, but you haven't rediscovered the word of God that's sitting in the back closet of the temple of your heart. Jesus. Ten commandments. First commandment. Right? You have only one God before you, bowed down to no other. Second commandment of the Ten Commandments is you are to have no engraven images of the Lord thy God or of anything of any likeness on the earth or in the earth, below the belly of the earth. 
You are to have no engraven images. Now this is profound. You're just like, I don't we just like, oh, the Old Testament is like my favorite thing to say in church. Oh, the Old Testament, just get rid of oh, the Ten Commandments, who cares? The second commandment of the Lord thy God is you are not to have any images of him. Why? We get all bound up with it. It's because God in history back then is saying to the people of ancient man, you will not know me by what you see. You will know me by your relationship with me. He's saying to ancient man, you're not going to have a statue of me. But how are we supposed to know what you look like and what you're about? And, And all of this, he's like, yeah, that's the point of this. The way to know me is to step into relationship with me. Not by looking at an image and think you know who I am. You are now forced to read about me. You know your God through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit breathing on the word. We're forced to know him through words that bring deeper relationship. It's the difference between lust and love and lust and relationship. If you have an image, an engraved image, you lust after, right? Oh, look at this golden calf. Look at this image of what I think Christianity is supposed to look like. And you lust after it. It's all driven by the visual. But if you want to get into relationship with your father, if you want to get in relationship with your spouse, you got to move past that, well, she looks good in that outfit. You have to go past God looks good by how people are presenting it to me. If you want to know God, you need to step into intimacy. You need to step into relationship, which is brought forth in the giving of the word. This is the revelation, the revolution that was taking place in ancient man. The second commandment brought a revelation to the people of the ancient world. You are to know God not through what you see, by what you know about him through spending time with him and the word. We do not know who God is by just what we see on earth because we can get confused real quickly. Get confused very quickly. But we get back into the word and understanding. We get a depth of understanding of who he is. Does that make sense? Kind of, sort of? Yeah. All right. All right, let's go to the next slide. (laughs) We have the worship team come on up. Please. Whomever that may be. So... Sorry for some of us from a bit of a Catholic background. Um, oh, one, of the, one of the biggest, one, one of the huge big things that separated Protestant Christianity and Christ, uh, Catholic Christ, uh, Christianity was one of the notions of uh, engraven images, statues, uh, false idols, uh, engraven images, a statue of likeness of God or a statue of likeness of saints and things like that. So engraven images forbidden by God. So why did the Catholic Church change the Ten Commandments? Like commandment two, do not make any likeness of God or people because you can fall down and you can worship that kind of stuff. Well, to be fair to the history of Catholicism, one reason is that if you build statues, people can at least, like illiterate people, people who, who cannot read, can look at those statues and see a, see a story, right? thousand years ago, people were not reading, right? They don't know how to read. So how do you foretell and tell a Bible story to them so that they can know and so they can understand? Well, you know, put a stained glass window in, put a statue so there's some kind of connection that they can have, right? There's also another reason. Uh, And it's really an, an issue of control. Hitler 
Here is what God looks like. Don't read the word. Come to me and I will tell you how to worship God. I want to be fair, but a lot of my friends who grew up in a Catholic church, they're like, they never told us to read the Bible. The nuns and the priests just told us what to do. And this is God and this is who he is and this is what you're supposed to do. That's the point. If we get our understanding of who God is through just our images of him, through our pictures of what we think he is, but based upon our emotions, we're not going to have a true depiction of who your father is. To know him is to read his word, to experience his word. Jesus, the word made flesh and engaging in them. We bring this back to Josiah and Hilkiah. Josiah hears of the word. And the first thing that happens to him is he's tremendously convicted. He's convicted of reading the word. He's like, oh man, we've been worshiping false idols. We've been worshiping false gods. We've not doing the commandments of what God has told us to do. If you just lower the piano a little bit, Alan, that'd be nice. So what does he do? He hears this and then he goes to all the idols and he takes them, all the idols in Israel, they take them and they burn them. They burn them down. They take the ashes and they actually spread them out over graves to signify that these things shall come to death. And then we have 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 24. It says, Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spirits, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Helkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart. And then it says that the king commanded all the people to keep the Passover. And such a Passover had never been experienced in all the days of Israel. The Passover... The holiday, the representation of the blood that takes away your sins. It said they've never had a Passover, never had a celebration, never had a worship service as profound as it was until they got rid of the abominations and the idols in their life. And the only way they got the abominations and the idols out of their life is when they experienced the word of God for themselves. Let me go to the, the last slide here. Right before you, in my hand, and maybe in your hand or in your phone, this right here are the very oracles of God. The very words of the one true holy God. Truth is in this book. There's a lot of religions out there that seek truth and seek different things out. Buddhists go through a period of extreme self-denial. They believe that they deny themselves earthly pleasure, that they'll be transformed into a spiritual nirvanic state to enter into a heavenly realm. So they spend their whole life bringing pain purposely on themselves to rid themselves of their body and existentially in a philosophical way get to a heavenly place. I mean, that takes a lot, a lot of effort. It's crazy, right? These, these guys and, and girls. Uh, the ancient Greeks... To hear one word from one of their many gods, they would go and travel to a temple. 
Uh, the journey uh, at times would take up to a month. That means they're not working for a month. They're packing up their family and they're walking to one of the temples. They walk to the temple and they literally sit outside and they wait for the priests to come out to give them a word about their life. And these priests, literally, we know this from archaeological evidence, they would sit on top of a pit. And in the pit, they would burn this glue-like substance. And they would sit there for days, literally getting high off of the fumes, to get a word from their gods, to then give to the people. And the people, after a, a two weeks, three weeks, they go on this journey, they receive the word about their son or their daughter, about what they should do in their life, and they pack up on their mule, and they start, and they go back home again. Like a month's journey to get the oracles of their gods. Orthodox Jews, not all of them, but many of them, uh, will devout their entire life to the reading and studying of Scripture. What I mean by that is many of them do not work. They live, like they do not work. In Israel, like 20, 30% of society do not work because what they do with their life is they sit in a room and they study God's word their entire life. That's what they do eight, nine, ten hours a day, seven days a week. That's all they do. They're like, well, you live in a you live in the ghetto. And they're like, it doesn't matter, I'm reading God's word. Yeah, but how are you gonna get food? They're like, ah, it, it always gets provided. It's okay. I'm not telling you to do that. But what I'm saying here is here are three types of people who do very, very drastic things to have action and interaction with the words of their gods. And then Orthodox Jews, God, Yahweh. I came across a stat which is pretty perplexing. Born again believers on average, when they did their uh, survey, one of the surveys, who knows how many surveys are out there, right? But one survey by Christianity Today said that 45% of born again believers read their Bible at least once a week. That means that 55% born again, probably spirit filled believers, do not read the very oracles of God during the week. So, the heroes of faith, Josiah and Hilkiah, is reviving, finding again the word of God inside of our lives. I am telling you, tapping into the word of God is more important today than any other time in history. Because you have so many powerful forces of Facebook, of Twitter, of the news, of opinions, of liberalism, of conservatism, all these things coming at us like we've never been inundated before. And it makes life so confusing. I don't know what to believe anymore. The liberals say that, you know, you should be loving gay people and you should allow them to get married in your churches. And you're like, oh, I want to love them, but I don't want them to be married in my church. Oh, well, but then you're not loving them. You're like, ah, and then you go to the word of the Lord. You go to the word of the Lord and it gr grounds you in what's going on. Ah, abortion. I mean, all these issues, there's so many things, man. You got to get into the word. And the word is going to instruct and tell you how we are to, to, to do things. In closing up, a couple of things about the actual word of God. Romans 15.4 For whatever 
things were written before were written in I'm sorry, we're written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Things were written before for our learning. The scripture is for our learning and that we can comfort ourselves in the scriptures so that we might have hope. Amen? Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The Lord is coming to create a new heavens and a new earth. This earth is going to be gone. Heaven is going to be gone. It's going to be made anew. The only thing that shall continue through the scope of time is the word. Psalm 119.105. The law of God is a lamp unto my feet. It shall show me where to go. It shall show me what to do. It shall guide me and direct me and tell me what is right and which course of action I shall take. And the last one for today before we part is Hebrews 4.12. I really want you to plug into this. I know this is a little bit different, but I just, I was just feeling it, man. Josiah hears the word of the Lord and he changes his life. It went, the word of the Lord was empty for so long. The importance of getting into the word so many people and so many forces pull us one way, pull us another way. We need to be grounded in something and we need to know our God more than just a flashy image. More than what our perspective is of what we believe God to be. We need deeper understanding. We need deeper relationship with Him that's provided through prayer and worship and getting into the Word of God to understand who He is. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God discerns our hearts. When we think something is right, we bring it back to the word, and the word shall show us what's going on. It is living and powerful and sharper than two-edged sword that just cuts through all the stuff, cuts through the emotions, cuts through the opinions. So that's all I got today. Father, I pray <laughs> that, that, that these things would, would hit us, touch us, have us go forward in the things of you. I mean, the lesson here is go out and read your Bibles. Not always the most sensational and emotionally appealing charge to people. That's the point. We live too much off of pure emotion and sensationalism. We're talking about the Word. We're talking about the Word. The Word made flesh. The very oracles of God. The people who laid down their lives so that you could get this book. 
The people in China who are scrambling and risking their lives so they could just read a glimpse of this. Get a glimpse. So, Father, I pray that we can just go forward like Josiah, King Josiah, and like Hilkiah. And we could find once again the word of God inside of the temple of ourselves. That we could rediscover that you could pour out beauty and love and passion upon your holy scripture again. That you would wake us up in the morning and keep us up at night. Not to scroll through our Facebook feed. Not to check one last email. But to get into the holy word of God that shall last forever. That shall last forever. The word of God that transforms minds. Provides the salvation message. Lord, please, I'm just asking for us to have a spirit like Josiah that we hear your word. And we desire to spend more time with you and get plugged in with you again. Father, I pray that it's not a matter of, of penalty upon us. That it doesn't become just a list of things that we have to do. But like Josiah, he just responded in such love like, how can I not read the word of my God? I want to know him deeper and in deeper understanding, Lord. Ah, we just pray this in your name. Amen. Have a wonderful week. As always, we have some refreshments downstairs. Uh, But feel free to just, um, you know, stay in the presence here as always. Uh, And if you need prayer for anything, we're just just here. We can pray for you and lift you up um, in whatever you may be going through. Amen. Have a wonderful week.